turns with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5, we will be looking both at Matthew 18, verses 15, really to 17, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning, looking at a few different things out of both sections. But I want to read this morning to begin together from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and just the whole chapter, verses 1 to 13. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather... To mourn, let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh." so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person. From among you. Would you pray with me? Father, it is an unfortunate and sorrowful reality that among your people who have been bought with the blood of Christ among those who call upon His name for salvation, there is sin. There is rebellion. At times there is great evil that arises from within us 
where we forget who we are in Christ and what we have called to be in the world and who we have called, who we have been called to be as a part of the church. We forget and we go astray. Father, Your love, Your mercy will not allow us to continue in rebellion. You call us back to Yourself. And Father, You have given us the body of Christ to be one of the primary means to do this. To go after wandering sinners. To go after those who have wandered away from their first love of Christ to snatch them out of the fire, to bring them back into the fold. So Father, I pray that as we consider Your Word this morning, we consider the ways that Your church has been set up to call sinners back to Yourself. I pray that You would give us Open ears, eyes to see, and hearts to receive Your Word with joy and gladness. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are finishing up our four-part series on biblical church membership and discipline. Over the last few weeks, we have moved through several key passages of Scripture that speak directly to the nature of the church and specifically to how it is identified as the church in distinction from all other institutions in the world. We saw in the first week that church membership is in fact a thoroughly biblical practice. It's not something that was just invented within the last hundred years and not something that just makes things convenient for us to account for those who say, I'm a member of so-and-so. This is a thoroughly biblical practice and is in fact the means by which the local church bears witness in the world to who the people of God are on the earth. It's in a certain sense a testimony to what the kingdom of God in some measure is going to look like when Christ returns. These are some of the people who are going to be there. A little foretaste. Church membership marks off the border that separates the kingdom of God from the kingdom of the world. The second week we looked at the duties of church members. We saw there that the vast majority of commands in the New Testament that disciples are called to obey are commands that are only fulfilled in the context of the local church. For example, all the one another passages. Love one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. These, these are passages dealing with how we relate to one another in the context of the local body of Christ. In fact, one of the things we saw as well is that the New Testament doesn't even really recognize or even have a category for disciples of Jesus who are not members of local churches. The pattern you see all throughout the book of Acts, for example, is that you're saved, Holy Spirit comes upon you, 
hearts renewed, hearts opened, received the gospel, added to the church through baptism. Our lives of discipleship, our lives of continually growing more and more into the image of Christ, does not ever take place apart from the local church. And then last week, we went through the Bible, general survey from Genesis to Revelation, and we saw that there was a consistent testimony of Scripture that God's people are called to be a pure and holy people. They are to be distinct from the world. It doesn't mean that they have no contact with the world. It's an impossibility. It's one of the things we just saw Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5. It's not a matter of leaving the world or separating yourself physically from the world. It means that individually, the people of God are constantly making war against their own sin, sin which the world cherishes. We make war against it, and they are repenting of it. And then corporately, as local congregations, we're doing the same thing. So Individually, making war against sin as a body as well, making war against our sin. Local churches are to be a repenting people. And so, as we saw last week, if someone who identifies themselves with the church and with Christ is no longer a repenting person, but they choose rather to embrace their sin and to follow the course of the world that they had been following before, they made their good confession. They choose to embrace their sin. In order for the people of God to be a holy people, the church must remove that unrepentant person from the membership of the church. The church can no longer recognize that person as a disciple of Christ. And this, as we saw, is called church discipline. And since we looked broadly at the necessity of God's people to be pure and holy last week, this morning what I want to do is look at the biblical guidelines for how this process actually takes place in the church. That's our question I want to look at together. What does church discipline actually look like in the church? Well, let me begin by saying... Whether you realize it or not, you actually believe this already. And Baptists actually already practice this on some level, a certain level. It's already continuing to go on. For example, November 2014, after a few months of being here, I attended the annual meeting of the Kentucky Baptist Convention. It was here in Bowling Green, hosted by Living Hope Baptist Church. On the agenda for Kentucky Baptist to address was the matter of a certain church in Louisville, Kentucky, called Crescent Hill Baptist Church. Crescent Hill had come out publicly stating their support for homosexuality and same-sex marriage. They were a Kentucky Baptist church. They published a statement on their website saying that their congregation had, quote, overwhelmingly 
voted to be open to grant ordination, hire, or perform wedding ceremonies for LGBTQ individuals, end quote. This position was clearly contrary to the doctrinal position of Kentucky Baptists. And more importantly, the Bible. So Kentucky Baptists, after some discussion of the matter, voted to disfellowship the church. They voted as an assembly of representatives from various churches throughout Kentucky to no longer recognize Crescent Hill as a church. That's what they did here in Bowling Green a couple years ago. It wasn't an easy thing to do. There were tears that were shed. Biblically, it was the clear and right course to take. But it was sorrowful. It was sad to see a church abandon the gospel for cultural compromise. And it was a sad moment when that church had to be removed. But it was necessary. And it was necessary because God calls His people to be a holy people. To be a repenting people. There's a clear recognition. We are not sinless. We have not yet reached the point of glorification. But we are called to be repenting from our sin. To be a repenting people. Now friends, that was an act of church discipline on a broad, conventional level. And I bring it up simply to demonstrate that we do believe these things. Kentucky Baptists overwhelmingly voted to excommunicate another church because they were no longer walking in step with the gospel. We believe this. We practice it. The problem is that we have almost completely abandoned this practice at a local level. And as a result, we have become very hypocritical in our application of discipline. Why is it that it was only the case of homosexuality that brought up this matter? Homosexuality is not the only sin plaguing churches. But it's the one that got everyone's attention. And if the way that we administer discipline at a conventional level and at a local level is in that way, that we only single out certain things, it's hypocrisy. The local level, the local church, is the place primarily where discipline should occur. And if this was already taking place in Baptist churches the chances are higher that Crescent Hill would never have gone the direction that they went in. Because the members of the church would have been doing their due diligence and duty to maintain the doctrine and the purity of the church. You see? It has to begin on the local level. Brothers and sisters, discipline should, in fact, actually be a regular part of of discipleship, a regular part of discipleship. 
This is the first point I just want to make about the process of discipline. It is a regular part of discipleship. You see, discipline, discipline is not only about excommunication. Excommunication is simply the last step in the regular discipline of the church that specifically addresses continued open, unrepentant sin. The last step in a longer process of discipline. Discipline is about pursuing holiness on an individual and corporate level. Discipline is about making war against sin. It's about putting to death the deeds of the body, as Paul says. In in other words, it is a necessary part of our sanctification and our growth in holiness. And so discipline should actually be taking place in the regular life of the church. And in some measure, it already does. We receive discipline from the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. That's part of our discipline. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The Word of God confronts us in our sin. That's one of the central things it does for us as sinners. It shines a light on our idols. And it exposes them. It corrects erroneous thinking. It convicts us. It judges us. And it exhorts us and calls us to repent. And to believe in Christ for life. The Word of God is God speaking to us personally. And as God speaks to us through His Word, sometimes He comforts us. Sometimes He strengthens us with His promises. Sometimes He encourages us as well with His promises. But sometimes He also humbles us. And He causes us to see our sin. So we come under the discipline of God Himself as we come under the preaching and the teaching of the Word. This this is the discipline we receive from the Word of God on a regular basis. We also receive discipline from other believers. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, Paul is describing a time when he had to oppose Peter in the presence of other believers. Peter was acting like a hypocrite. On the one hand, when it was just him and other Gentile Christians, he ate with them, he associated with them, he respected them, he treated them as co-equals, co-heirs to the kingdom of God. But when he was around other Jewish believers, his attitude began to change towards them. He removed himself from them. He separated himself from these Gentile believers. And he did so because he was afraid that the Jews might look down upon him for associating with these 
unclean people. So he acted hypocritically. And his hypocrisy even led others to act hypocritically. He led Barnabas into sin as well. Barnabas was taking Peter and his example and following it. And so you had Barnabas doing the very same thing. And so Paul writes about this situation in verse 14, and he says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So we've got these gospel beliefs, we've got these gospel practices, there's a manner of living that accords with the gospel. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. In other words, if if you are perfectly fine, Peter, eating unclean food, because God has taught you that what He has now called clean is not unclean. If you yourself are not seeking to be justified by the works of the law because you recognize that justification comes by faith. If you, Peter, are now living like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to now live like Jews? This is public rebuke. Peter received discipline from a fellow believer in Paul. It was a relational, relational discipline. And this relational discipline is, in fact, what Jesus calls us to do in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, what we read earlier. He says there, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, Peter's sin wasn't a private offense. It was affecting many other people. It affected Barnabas. It was taking place in the public view of many people. So Paul was right to correct him in a more public manner. But the point is the same. Where sin is being committed by one believer, and another knows about it, it should be confronted and corrected with love, with kindness, with gentleness and humility. There should be, in other words, a culture within the church. Not where everyone's just pointing fingers at each other. That's that's not what Jesus is getting at or what Paul is doing. But a culture in the church where everyone is open to receive correction. And fellow believers are willing to offer it. Discipline, in other words, should be a very regular part of the church's life. Coming from the Word, coming from other believers. The question that you just have to ask yourself, however, is am I open to being corrected? Is that my disposition? In the church, am I willing and open to receive correction from my brothers and sisters in Christ? See, there wasn't a split, friends, between Peter and Paul when Peter was corrected. There wasn't a church split between the Jews and the Gentiles. Peter received the correction. He obviously learned from it. And the church was better 
because of it. The church, Peter at the head, this moment, was going in one direction. Paul corrected them. They got back on track. That's what, hap- that's what has to happen a lot of times, right? We, we sin. We are sheep. We wander. We've got to get back on the path. Somebody, especially if we can't see it, we can't see our own sin, somebody's got to help us get back. And that's what Peter, that's what Paul did with Peter. Peter received it. The church was better for it. And as Peter received it, what it demonstrated, or what it showed, was a sign of humility. Peter was one of the chief apostles, and yet he was willing and able and open to receive correction from one who Paul referred to himself as the least of the apostles. It was a sign of humility. To refuse correction is a sign of pride. So you have to ask, which one am I? What am I open to? And so my exhortation to you, brothers and sisters, is to strive to be a humble people. Be willing to receive and to be open to correction from your brothers and sisters who are seeking your good. Who out of love, perhaps, maybe see sin and go to you and show you your fault. Indeed, one way to practice this is rather than just wait for someone to come and give you correction, go to your brothers and sisters in the church and ask them for correction. Ask them, is there anything you see in my life that is not in step with the Gospel? Is there anything I'm doing? Is there anything that I can be better in, more Christ-like in? You go yourself to your brothers and sisters and ask them, is there anything you see in me that I do not? So my first point is that discipline should be a regular part of the life of the church and discipleship. Second, discipline is sometimes a corporate practice. Discipline is sometimes a corporate practice. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 16 and following, Jesus speaks to his disciples about a situation in which a person has sinned and has been shown his or her fault and is unwilling to repent. In such a case, he says, more people have to get involved. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now the sin that is under consideration here, the hypothetical situation that Jesus brings up, is not some internal sin. It's not something like lust or unbelief that can't be seen. It's a matter of the heart. There's no way to actually address it unless what is in the heart is coming outward in external actions. The sin that Jesus is speaking of is open. It's outward. And we know that this is the case because Jesus is calling for evidence. And He's calling for witnesses. This is a sin like fornication, or adultery, or thievery, or drunkenness. It's something that can be seen, that more people can be witnesses to. And if the sinning brother is confronted privately, and after being shown his fault, he still does not repent, Jesus says more people should get involved. The gravity of the situation should now begin to increase, in other words. 
And Jesus goes on to say in verse 17 that if more people get involved and the sin is clearly exposed, there is very clear evidence with two or three witnesses, and still the brother or sister does not repent, the church must now get involved as a corporate assembled body. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now friends, what we see here, what Jesus is describing, is not a witch trial. Make that very clear. This is not a witch trial. What it is, and what Jesus is commending and commanding, is a corporate pursuit of a straying brother to bring him back to Christ. It is no coincidence that Jesus teaches on this process of church discipline immediately after He tells the parable of the lost sheep. In that parable, He likens the love of God to a shepherd who loves His sheep. And one of those sheep has gone astray. One of those sheep has become lost. And what does the Father do as the shepherd? He goes after the sheep. He leaves the rest of them in absolute pursuit of the One. And He goes after the sheep until He finds it. Friends, that is how God loves sinners. And if you know Him, that is how He loved you. He did not just allow you to wander away and wallow in your sin. He came after you individually, personally. He put you in situations where the Word was preached. Conviction was present. The Holy Spirit moved in your heart. He went for you personally as a lost sheep. And Jesus, after He tells this parable to His disciples, then moves into this process of discipline. And so He is teaching His disciples This is how you love your brothers and sisters. This is how you pursue them when they are the lost sheep. You go after them. You don't simply leave them wandering in their sin. You don't simply watch them walk towards the edge of the cliff. You go after them so that they will not perish. You pursue them. So sometimes, friends, the church as a body has to be involved together in this process of discipline. Which leads to our next point, which is that the final level, the last step in church discipline is excommunication by the church gathered, the church assembled. It is simply a fact of our present experience in this sin-stained world. That sometimes, someone who at one time showed evidence of being a Christian can turn away from the faith. Either through doctrinal heresy, or indeed, through life of unrepentant sin. And our King, The King of the church, Jesus, 
Our King tells us what the church must do in such a case. An unfortunate case. Verse 17, again, He says, If He refuses, even to listen to the church, let Him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, let Him be considered by you, church, as an unbeliever. This is how your judgment of this person must now be. They are now in the realm of unbelief. When sin has so overtaken a person that they will not repent, they will not listen to correction, the church can no longer formally recognize that person as a believer. It doesn't have the authority to do that. Christ hasn't given the church the authority to do that. And it doesn't matter how much that person says, I believe in Jesus. If their faith is not accompanied by good works, by repentance, by obedience, James, in his letter, says their faith is dead. It's not real faith. It's just a verbal announcement and there's no life there. The demons can say stuff like that. The demons know God exists and they shudder. Real faith has real fruit. The church has no authority and no evidence to continue to affirm that person any longer as a Christian. Indeed, friends, the church bears false witness if it does so. If we give testimony that an individual who has pursued adultery fornication, who has renounced Christ in their actions, if we continue to say, yes, believer in Jesus, disciple of Christ, we lie and do not practice the truth. Paul himself calls for the same actions to be taken in 1 Corinthians 5. Addressing the matter there of an openly unrepentant man in the church at Corinth, he says in verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Meaning his, his sinful nature. That. And we'll talk about why he says that in just a second. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Excommunication for open, unrepentant sin is not optional. It is a command given to the church by our Savior and by one of our apostles. What does that look like? What does excommunication look like? Well, as I've said before, excommunication is not the physical removal of a person from the church building or the church premises. This is not a physical action that is to be taken place. So when, when Scripture speaks about removing someone from the church removing them from among you, or or even church membership, entering into the church. It's not a physical action. 
In fact, the opposite is the case. Someone who is under church discipline should not be told to stay away from the congregation. Rather, they should be told to continue to come here to hear the Word of God. We want them to be around the people of God. We want them to be under the preaching of the Word. We want repentance. We want life and faith. They need to be here. It's not a physical removal by any means. Excommunication is when the church no longer formally recognizes a person as a member. And the way it does this in the New Testament is by barring them from access to the Lord's Supper. That's one of the things the Lord's Supper is doing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, after Paul says not to associate, or literally not to mix together, is the idea with that word. Not to mix together with a professing believer living in unrepentant sin. He adds that the church must not even eat with such a one. Must not even eat with such a one. Now here, this is not an absolute prohibition against ever sharing a meal with someone who's been excommunicated, with someone who's under church discipline. This is not Paul saying, you can never have a sandwich with this person again. (laughs) In the early church, part of the weekly gathering involved sharing a meal together. In fact, Jude 12 refers to these times as love feasts. Christians would come together, they would worship, there would be reading of Scripture, there would be preaching, there would be feasting. And it was generally around the time of the love feast, and the meal, when the church would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It was very much like the first Lord's Supper, the institution of the Supper, when they are gathered around eating together with Jesus. And so, for example, this was actually a problem. The matter of the feast and the Lord's Supper was a problem that Paul also had to address in 1 Corinthians 11. The Corinthian church had a lot of different issues going on. And one of them was how they were practicing the Lord's Supper along with these feasts. Some in the Corinthian congregation were wealthy. They didn't have to work. And so they would be able to come to the love feast early. And what many of them were doing was eating all the food. The other brothers and sisters who were poor and didn't have anything and had to work would come to the love feast. They would be a little late and they would find when they got there that all the food was gone. The wealthy people ate it. And so Paul has to rebuke them for this behavior, for disregarding their brothers and sisters because they don't have as much. And notice what he says in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 11. He says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. His own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Notice that the Lord's Supper there is a part of a meal that the church shares together. It's one element of a larger feast. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, 
When Paul says concerning an excommunicated person, do not even eat with such a one, he's addressing the assembled church and he's saying you don't share the Lord's Supper with such a one. You don't share and partake in the love feast with such a one. And this is how the church formally practices discipline. And friends, this is one of the reasons... This is one of the reasons why the New Testament specifically condemns the habitual practice of absenting yourself from the church. Church attendance, friends, is not about having a good report card. It's not about being able to testify to everyone, I've never missed a church service or I don't miss them very often. When the church gathers, and especially when the Lord's Supper is being administered, the church is publicly testifying to who the members of the body of Christ are. So as we partake together of the supper this morning, and it goes around, you will no doubt, hopefully have noticed, that I often commend a fencing of the table. That If you are not a believer if you are not a member in good standing of another church or under the discipline of another church, we would ask you to abstain. If you are a member in good standing, if you believe in the same gospel, you are welcome to partake. At the Lord's Supper, the church is publicly testifying to who the members of the body of Christ are. So friends, when you absent yourself from the assembled church and the church is partaking of the Lord's Supper, you have, in effect, excommunicated yourself. That's the public witness that is being given time after time again. You are saying, in essence, I am not a part of the body of Christ. And that is why, again, the New Testament is very clear that this should not be a habit. There's much more to be said on this point, but let me just close with this last point, which is that the purpose, the purpose of discipline is always redemptive. It's always redemptive. Excommunication is not about vengeance. If it ever becomes such, the church itself is in sin. Vengeance belongs to God. It's not about retribution. It's about redemption. It's about salvation. It's first about the redemption of an individual. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, the goal of the very first step in discipline, when one brother shows another brother his fault, notice that the goal is to gain him, Jesus says. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And that word there, gain, contains the idea of investing energy and resources. It's, it's the word that Jesus uses when he asked, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? 
if he invests all of who he is in this life to acquire the pleasures of this world, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Jesus assumes that going after a brother who has fallen into sin will be an investment. It will be an investment for an individual, and it will be an investment for the church. It will require emotional toil, emotional commitment. It will often involve sorrow and pain and disappointment. But friends, that momentary affliction, that sorrow, that disappointment, that energy that has to be given is far beyond worth it if it saves a soul. Far beyond worth it. And that is the purpose of discipline. To love as the Father loves His sheep. To pursue one another if we are wandering. This is another reason why in 1 Corinthians 5, you see Paul saying there that you are to deliver this unrepentant man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. This act of the church gathering together and formally barring the person from the Lord's table, formally recognizing we cannot affirm you in your current life as a believer, is intended, he says, to destroy the flesh, which is what we want destroyed. That's our our sin nature, our wicked part. Not, not our, not our spirit, right? Not the Holy Spirit given to us. Our flesh is what we make war against. He says, this is intended to destroy the flesh. And then notice, so that His Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's the goal. Salvation. Salvation is the goal. And when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we won't turn there this morning. But we find, more than likely, this same man being discussed in 1 Corinthians 5, popping up again in 2 Corinthians 2. And you know what has happened? The man has come to himself. He's realized his sin. He's understood the gravity of it because the entire church was calling upon him to repent. And you know what he did? He repented. We find Paul writing to the Corinthian church again in 2 Corinthians 2 and telling them, you know what you do now, church? You welcome him. You bring him back in. You welcome him as a brother in Christ. Yet church discipline, friends, is not only, it's not only redemptive for an individual, it is redemptive also for the church, for the entire body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul asks this rhetorical question. He says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The point of the question is very simple. Sin left unaddressed in the church does not just affect one person. It affects everyone. 
It, it permeates everyone. It creates a culture where sin is tolerated. It creates a culture where holiness is nothing more than just a nice thought. But it's never pursued. And a culture where Christian spirituality, and very importantly, our evangelistic power, vanishes into thin air. We want to be an evangelistic church. We want to be a people who see people come to faith. Holiness must saturate us. Church discipline, brothers and sisters, at every single level and at every stage is not a practice that harms the church. It's a practice that saves the church. It snatches us away from our sin. It presents us to Christ. It brings us to Jesus, who Himself is building His church. He's building His house. And He is building His house with power, with glory. And He's building it according to His own infinite wisdom. Church, let us be a people. Let us be a people who do not strive against our Lord. As we seek to be participants in the house that is being built universally and locally, we would not strive against our King, but we would be a people who trust in His Word and who trust in His ways and who trust, friends, that all things He does and all things He commands to be done are things that are for our good and for His glory. Let's be a people like that. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Your Word teaches us that unless the Lord builds the house, we build it in vain. Father, I think we all can confess That sin in our own lives and sin in the lives of those who we know always brings us grief and always brings us pain. Father, I pray that it would not bring us to despair. That we would always look to Christ and see the victory hanging there on the cross and see the empty tomb and see in that the power over sin and death. And that as we behold the beauty of Christ ascended into heaven, we would never despair over our sin and over the sin that we see around us. But that with confidence and boldness, we would always be seeking to attain and to know the power of the resurrection in our life. Father, give us hearts. Give us the heart of Peter, who when corrected, receives correction rightly with humility. Give us the mind that was in Christ. Humble mind. And make us a people like Him, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.